When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What was the NBA like in the 70s? How did dribbling improve so dramatically back then? Was 1976 truly the golden age of the NBA? The only question left is, say it with me, you win. Hey sports fans, Coach Nick here and welcome to the B-Ball Breakdown Podcast. Today I'm excited to bring on author Adam Cribley, who has just written a great book called Tall Tales and Short Shorts, Dr. J, Pistol Pete, and the Birth of the Modern NBA. And he's also a professor at Southeast Missouri State. Adam Cribley, thank you for joining us today and to talk about your book and about the history of the NBA. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Not a problem. Uh, and, you know, I thought we can kind of jump right into it because your focus is pretty much the 70s uh, in the NBA starting there. And I think that there's a really interesting um, development that happens right around 1970. And I'm wondering if you can give me some more insight because it's kind of a fascinating thing where, you know, if you watch, um, you know, the Eastern Conference Finals, I believe it's like 67 between the Celtics and the, and the Philadelphia Warriors. You see guards that dribble with the right hand going to their left. You don't see a lot of dribbling ability at all, really. Nobody through the legs much or behind the back. And then all of a sudden, 1970-71 rolls around, and you got guys doing spin moves, behind the back, crossovers, in a very short time. And I'm wondering if you can help me get some insight into like what happened there and why dribbling exploded at the NBA level. Well, I think the one thing that, that's been looked at by, by some historians is the, the influence of the playground game. And so the playground game really picks up kind of mid to late 60s, and you have not only places like Rucker Park in, in New York City, but also um, in, in, in Philly, the uh, Baker, uh, Baker League and that sort of thing, that uh, Dr. J, Pistol Pete, they're kind of coming of age. But maybe even more than that, Pistol Pete's a great example, that newfound wizardry on the court. And um, another one, though, is, is Earl Monroe. And Earl the Pearl had a mean spin move, could go either way. Uh, he could get in the lane and score. And so I think you have the generation of guys growing up on that street ball game where, I mean, if you're dribbling to your left with your right hand, you're going to get it picked every time um, if you're playing on the playgrounds. And so some things that – some bad habits maybe that even great players like Jerry West, you watch Jerry West trying to go left and he might as well have tied his left hand behind his back dribbling the ball. Um, but that his generation is kind of – going out, and that playground style is definitely coming into the game in the early 70s. You know, in Jerry's defense, uh, you know, he actually showed this to me once. I was actually on the court with him, and he was describing some of the moves he used to use. And one of them was he would dribble the ball in his right hand and, like, have it – he would kind of gallop at his man with the right hand forward and the right foot forward and kind of daring the man to reach in. And if he did, he would do, like, an inside out and keep it in the right hand and then go right by him. So – 
I will give him a little credit where, even though obviously he he really looked uncomfortable kind of going to his left hand, even though every once in a while he would, um, he did at least have, there, there was some reason as to why you didn't just reach in and steal it. Like, that's that's sort of like why, I, we, I scratch my head a lot when I'm watching that saying, the guy could just knock it away every time, but at least for Jerry West's you know, perspective, he did have a move that would counter that to some degree. But um, I think you're right, because what's interesting for me as a coach is that, you know, at some point, uh, I have to imagine like the fifth, like the playground stuff was happening probably even in the 50s, right? We probably had spin sure. moves and crossovers. That's, that's fair enough to say, right? Right. And I think, I mean, Bob Cousy clearly is doing it in the NBA. So it's not as if these are the first players to do it in the, in the late 60s and 70s. But, yeah, the playground game goes to a different level, I think, mid-60s, late-60s. Because I think the interesting parallel could very well be, you know, when the jump, jump shot first came in, you know, Hank Lucetti or Kenny Sailors or whoever in, like, the 40s, you had coaches across the country saying, no player will ever shoot that way for me. And I have to imagine there's a similar parallel that way to, like, the dribbling stuff, where these coaches probably in the, were – that was why it didn't take hold until the 70s, which is why, you know, these coaches from the youth leagues on were probably even just saying, nope, you're, gonna, you're not going to do that fancy crossover behind the back stuff on my team. And then and the players, as a result, never really developed that until that explosion. Is that would, – would you agree? Yeah, I would agree. And I think that there's something to it, too, that – if a player throws a behind-the-back pass and it goes into the stands, that looks a lot worse than a player throwing a chest pass that goes into the stands. So I think there's that element of, well, you know, if he's if he's doing something fancy and it goes wrong, that it's it's so much more worse. I think, uh, from a coaching perspective, than it is maybe for the the, the simple play that that is uh, doesn't work out. For sure, for sure. And and the, so and getting back to like you know the, the sort of the NBA and, and the dribbling stuff specifically. Uh, it's funny because when you when you finally see it, you realize that it is actually fundamentally sound. It's, it is a better way to get around a player, right? To actually go to your other hand sometimes is is advantageous. Um, so you so you mentioned Pistol Pete, um, and and then there's all, and he's usually the guy I think when people mention right away. But uh, right, there are other guys that suddenly took this into another direction. Um, and I think what happens is like Billy Cunningham is a good example, right? He was an I think he was an All Star, right, in the late '60s. Sure. And he yep. was a guy that, you know, his skill was pretty low compared to, like, Clyde Frazier. So it's interesting, right? I think what we ended up seeing is, a, a, in a very short order, players who could have been really great in, like, 1668, by 71, wouldn't even be in the league, I think, right? Sure. No, and there's a, there's a huge influx of talent, I think, that, um, that comes into the league. And you're right. Some players that had been an all-star superstars in the late 60s. A great example for me is Jerry Lucas. Lucas was a fantastic player, a multi-time all-star, considered one of the greatest players in the league by many people in the 60s. And by the 70s, he's just, you know, he's a step slow. He's, he's not able to use those, the intellectual tools and those sorts of things because he's getting jumped over. And um, so I think that there's certainly a generation, a generational change between the late 60s and early 70s that, that all kind of culminates at the same time. Sure. And I, I think there's also, it's not code, but I think what you're also saying is that after Earl Lloyd, you know, and they broke the racial barrier in the NBA in 19, was, was, remember when that was, what year that was, 1950-something? Uh, yeah, um, 
Early fifties, yeah. So, so basically, and that and that progression was still very slow for a long time, right? And so, sure. eventually, though, by around nineteen seventy, I mean, it was still the percentage of African American players is still low, but at least it was it was kind of getting higher and higher in a way that that influence clearly would. Yeah, you would see some of these players who weren't great athletes, uh, and by the way, not necessarily that that skilled either, right? To some degree, uh, yeah, just being being phased out. It, it's a natural order of selection, I suppose. Yeah, no, completely, and it's it's really in, uh, I don't have the exact year, but it's right around 1970 when the league becomes majority African-American. So oh. uh, it's about 50-50 in 1970, and by 1979, it's 75-25. So right. the influx of, of talented African-American players certainly jumps. And uh, again, um, you know, not with, it's, it's not coded at all to say that many of the African-American players that are coming in had played that playground style, because inner cities in the late 60s are predominantly populated by African-Americans. So... The, the players playing on the playgrounds are African-Americans. They bring that aesthetic to the game. And so naturally, the game's going to change when you have the more talented players coming in, practicing that style. Sure. And, we you know, we can kind of take a deep dive into sort of what we're saying because, I mean, I think if you try and use that, it's sort of a racist term now if you want to use that, like, street ball phrase on sure. people, like in, in, in organized basketball. Whereas, in my mind, when you watch some of the stuff like Dr. J uh, at Rucker Park or earlier in the early 70s, it, it actually feels like there was more structure on the playgrounds anyway, like sort of built in. It wasn't completely just one-on-one uh, isolation, you know, like almost like we see now if you go to the park now. It, I feel like there was a little sense of movement and, you know, team stuff even back then on the playgrounds. Sure, and, and a lot of it's three-on-three, five-on-five, some combination of that. Three-on-three was really popular at the time. And so, yes, if one person's going to one-on-one, his teammates aren't going to get him the ball the next time. And so there's there's a lot of – it's not – you're right. It's not that playground one-on-one try to embarrass the guy in front of you every single time down the court. Um, Now, some of that did get into the game, but a lot of it was – there was ball movement. There are people working to get open and throwing the ball into the post and kind of cutting off of that. And so, yeah, it's not not that stereotypical street ball, no one's playing defense. I mean, they were – they were, uh, they, you know, it, it's very much a, a challenge to their masculinity if somebody scores on them. So they're not trying, they're trying not to let people score. They're, they're working with teammates. It's, it's not the style that we see and, and maybe demean today. Yeah, you know, it's, it's worthy of like a, some sort of documentary. I don't know how much visual evidence exists right now from the playground style of you know, the 50s and the 60s because I would, I would like to take a deep dive into that and do that because I feel like, you know, when I was growing up, for instance, in the, you know, 80s, early 80s, like, you know, there were just certain rules. Like if the ball went to the high post, you cut to the basket from the wing. Sure. No one ever taught you that. It just sort of, that's what you did. And I don't even think we have those rules anymore. That's not how young kids play anymore for, for whatever reason. But it seemed like even more so back then. And perhaps it's just because, you know, in the 50s, you were only, you know, 50 years removed from the invention of the game, basically, um, in a way that, like, those, the, the style had sort of, you know, was still taking hold and was still really strong over, like, you know, those kind of immutable uh, fundamentals, I suppose, of movement. Well, I think there's a time, it's a time of development. You mentioned earlier the jump shot. I mean, the jump shot at that point is only 15 years old. So to move from a set shot to people going between the legs and behind the back, and that's, I mean, that, it's, a, it's a transformation. It's a process. It's not something that happens overnight. And so a lot of those fundamentals are still very much in place. The, you know, I always make the joke of the, uh, the, the Hoosiers move. You have to pass the ball four times before you shoot it. And that, while tongue-in-cheek, is kind of still what's going on on the playground. They're still moving the ball around. They're still looking for teammates and cutters and, 
they're, they're doing a lot more of that than, again, we think of today. What's interesting is that when I think of the early 70s, I think of those old straight razors that gave people such great shaves. And you can get that same close, smooth shave from Harry's Razors today. Harry's is all about a great shave at a fair price, founded by two guys named Jeff and Andy who did something crazy. They bought a German razor factory and now make the highest quality blades for half the price of the leading five-blade razor. And you don't have to bother the clerk to open up the cabinet to prevent black market razor theft. They send them right to your door. They've also got great shaving cream, awesome smelling post-shave balm, and, sh and shaving sets that come with everything. Visit harrys.com slash coachnick and you'll get their trial set absolutely free. Just pay for some shipping. You'll get an, ergon you'll get an ergonomic razor handle, five precision engineered blades with lubricating strip, rich lathering gel, and a travel blade cover. Just head to harrys.com slash coachnick now and get that smooth shave you've been waiting for. You know, the thing that was startling to me, I, as I'm reading your book and I'm going through, I'm just like calling up random YouTube videos to see real play as well, like the ABA, NBA, All-Star you know, uh, game in 72 they have on the full game, and then you can watch like the Bucks and the Knicks from 71. The thing that startles me the most about even particularly that the Bucks knicks which is I'm sure uh, extremely normal or uh, common in that era, was just how fast the game was. And um, I just did, interestingly enough, a, a, a big, a little man video uh, breakdown. I don't know if you saw where I used, I compared Tony Archibald's uh, best year to Allen Iverson and to right. uh, Isaiah Thomas. And, but when you compare the pace, it's insane how much faster they played back then. Um, were you, are you startled by that when you started digging into the research and watching some of this footage? I am. And I'd, I'd say that it was especially startling because when I started doing the research, I grew up a fan of, you know, basketball in the 1990s. And so I was a Pacers, Knicks, Heat, like those rivalries to me were were what I knew basketball to be at that age. And now watching, and I can't watch that. It's, you know, the game's 82 to 86 with 30 seconds left, and it's 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 fouling and, and physical. Uh, no, you, the, the game in the in the early late 60s, early 70s is, is fast-paced, and the number of possessions that they get is insane. And you look at things now like efficiency and the number of turnovers. They're throwing the ball all over the place, and, uh, getting up and down, it's exciting to watch, but it's it's definitely jarring if you're not used to that style. If you if you're used to the modern game, or like me, uh, grew up on the '90s, that it almost looks like a different sport. How how fast the game is in the early '70s. Right, and it's and, and so and it's exciting only because yeah, we, we've even though we've kind of come back to that. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, the pace uh, of the Warriors last year, which I think was number one or you know top five at least, was like 99. And sure. the pace of the uh, well, let's see when Tiny did he, when Tiny led the league in scoring and uh, in assists that year for for um, oh my gosh uh, the Royals right yeah the Royals um, was like one point, was like one seventeen you know what I mean oh, like yeah sure twenty yep. percent yep. more possessions and that's just they were not number one uh, that year as far no. as I remember so uh, yeah it's up and down in a way that like it's frenetic. Uh, and the level, the skill level still wasn't high enough, I think, in the 70s um, in a way that while you might have seen turnovers and some weird ball handling and whatever because they just, you know, the, the level hadn't improved like it is now, uh, the, the excitement, I think, is rooted in the fact that you just never really knew what was going to happen from one play to the next. Whereas I think in comparison in the 90s, 
right? You're like, okay, Ewing's going to go down. He's going to get the shot, <laughs> right? And, you know, they're sure. going to keen to get the ball. He's going to kick it out. They're going to shoot a three. Like, you kind of got the sense that, like, you knew what was going to happen. It was kind of predictable to some degree where, um, like, when I watch hockey now, I'm not a hockey fan, I don't know anything about it, but it seems like the ice makes it just difficult enough where – even the best players, they're still the ball. The puck's still going to get loose a little bit, and they're going to slip a little bit, and you never, you know, you never quite know exactly how it's going to go. And I think it's that jazz that we, you know, Phil Jackson even talks about in his books. Uh, that's what was so captivating, and I think it's what's we've finally come full circle, and hopefully, I think we're recapturing more fans for the NBA now. Absolutely, and I think if you watch the, the one big difference in the '70s is that there was still a huge reliance on the traditional center that you threw the ball into in a low post. The difference from that in the Ewing era is you didn't throw the ball in the low post and then four guys stand on the other side of the court and watch him. You throw the ball in the low post, people are cutting, people are shifting, they're trying to get some action where they get an open 12 to 15 footer, or the center's making a move. And so, yes, yeah, one of my favorite teams to watch from the early 70s is the Bulls. So they had a big center named Tom Borwinkle. They throw it in, he's seven foot, 280 pounds, and he just acted as a pivot. People would cut off him, he'd throw the ball over his head or behind his back fantastic passer from the post but it's not that traditional you throw it into the big man and everybody stands and watches him play mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it's it's much more like today but there's also that pace but there's also an emphasis on getting the ball inside it's not trying to move the ball around for an open three in a corner so it's, it's definitely a different type of type of style for sure. And I, you know, I grew up in Chicago, and we had heard about those mythical Bulls teams. There was no <laughs> way to see those games you know, sure. growing up. We just heard about Norm Van Leer and Jerry Sloan and, and Boerwinkle, uh, who you know, was then, he later did, did the radio commentary, so we, we knew him yeah. from that. Um, and, you know, but, but if you watch it now, it's like I, it, while it is low post, it's also a lot of high post. A lot right. of elbow action, which is what we see today uh, more than ever, which really makes me excited because it tells you that that was right. Like they understood it, when Dutch Dennert in the 20s and the original Celtics was doing high post action, like they understood then how the game kind of worked and should be played. Um, and I agree. So I, and, I, and I think that there, it's an unmistakable influence from someone like John Wooden, who ran the UCLA high post offense um, for the most part, except for when uh, Lou Alcindor was there. They went a little bit more low, but still, he still played high. And I feel like what you see there is a lot of um, sort of that system basketball, which is free form and not called plays, but the uh, spacing and alignment was pretty, um, I don't want to say strict, but certainly pretty... Um, I guess what's the word, uh, you know, regimented to some degree. Like all five players knew where they were all kind of going on a hand, right? Sure, and you see a lot of spacing there. So you see, for example, if you throw the ball into Borwinkle at the high post, guards are cutting off him, but on the weak side you've got Bob Love or Chet Walker kind of spacing the floor, and if his defender sloughs in, then you've got a 15-footer on the on the opposite wing. And so there's it, without a three-point line, they're not spacing to 23 feet. They're spacing to 16 or 18 uh, but it's still that that very similar type of their spacing, you know, dare I use the term, you know, pace and space. There's a little bit of that already going on kind of in the in the 70s, especially with some teams. Uh, one thing I really like, though, is that not every team played that way. So if you watch the NBA in the early 70s to the throughout the 70s, you have so many different styles of play that there's not that follow the leader. Everybody has to play the same style as the modern day, you know, Golden State Warriors because of their success. Every team's going to try to replicate that. Every team kind of had a unique style, and and I think it, it made the game a lot um, a lot more you know distinct. In that you'd watch 
a Kings Bulls game looks a lot different than a, a Lakers Knicks game then, and and I think that that's something that I really enjoyed watching uh, from that decade. Yeah, the only thing I think also connects with that is the region, like where you were from, and I think it's probably more like on the high school, maybe college level. It was a little bit more like that, but depending on what part of the country you were in, sort of dictated how you played the game. I mean, this was going back a little bit earlier than the '70s, but I kind of feel like there was a connection there where you know, like Indiana was just fast break basketball, and you New York was sort of give and go and right and you know it's sneaky kind of stuff and uh, you know interestingly enough it's until Wooden got here as far as I can tell my research was you know California was a sort of a slow paced they didn't dribble a lot they kind of didn't want to pass the ball up uh, uh, quickly up the court Um, and I feel like that there's there's some connection to that too or certainly at least where the players were growing up regionally influenced them all the way up through the NBA. Absolutely and I think something else that was uh, that I always enjoy watching is so they didn't have the um, they didn't have the the textbook shooting strokes, and so you've got some really unique kind of releases, and and so the whole game. You're right. There there are definitely regional variations in the game that I think certainly are from earlier times. But even through the 70s, Indiana fans wanted that fast paced up and down basketball. The you know, and I think that that's maybe uh, best you know explained by looking at the the Lakers. We think about the Showtime Lakers of the 80s that fast break style well that originated really in the early 70s with the uh, the 72 Lakers that Wilt Chamberlain got a rebound and would outlet it to almost half court and then they're they're fast breaking and so uh, definitely these styles I think certainly began earlier but definitely continue through the 70s for sure, for sure, and, and the shooting is a great point too because you know we we've been slowly refining the fundamentals of how to teach shooting, and I feel like if you were playing in 1971 in the NBA, you grew up. Let's say you were probably what 10 in 1961, and that means you were being taught the same fundamentals that were being taught in 1941, probably. Or there hasn't been a lot of a difference there, and and that was still when two-handed set shots were being shot. So uh, it's it's a really kind of a fascinating evolution of of how that was all taught, and then how it ultimately you know got it to the game and then I feel like every year that go by you know I think more of these players move to more of a natural like okay they're showing me 10 toes to the rim they're showing me this stuff but that's not really how they did it and you kind of get at every level of you know from high school to college to the pros you kind of see them get farther away from like these strict notions of how you're supposed to do it Um, and as well then you get some really interesting things uh, as far as shooting goes Um, so you know what I find the most interesting thing about um about what happens with, you know, in the mid-70s and as we progress was it sort of feels like the golden age of the NBA, maybe even more so than even now, was after the ABA merger and you started to throw another, you know, 20 of the best players in the world into the NBA – it kind of, what I would notice from those years, from 76 uh, you know, to 80, was not only did you have the best athletes, the best skilled players playing all on the same court, but they were playing you know, uh, triangle offense. You'd see Princeton. You'd see UCLA High Post. These sort of regimented, really great five-man system basketball. Um, and it combined with great athleticism and skill. Like, to me, that's some of the best basketball I've still seen to this day. Sure, and I think that you um, those stars all come in and they are playing systems. They are playing uh, that that type of game. And really, the only time that they have that isolation clear out is, hey, we need Dr. J to get a bucket because it's a tie game with 11 seconds left. And they're not relying on that every time down the court. And so they're running all these different offenses. These, as you said, these very kind of regimented offenses. Um, but you have some incredibly creative players running them. And so they they still have the high flying, the exciting play. I've, I, I talk about this in the book, but I'll, I'll 
say till my grave that the 76-77 season was the most exciting season in basketball history because you have four, well, two really good teams and the Pacers and the uh, and the Spurs coming in. Or no, the Pacers and the, the Nets, neither team was great. Um, but you have all these this superstar talent coming in all at once that is unprecedented. And, um, and it just, it revolutionized the game. And so I think that people that point to Magic and, and, and Larry Bird coming in in 1980 as being the pivot, I, I think that it's, it's 76, it's when the merger happens, that we really see this, like you said, it's, it's a short-lived golden age, but there's, it's, it's some high-quality basketball for the most part in that four- or five-year stretch. For sure. And the interesting thing is, as you got a little bit farther into the 70s until the end of the 70s, what you then would see would be, you know, nice regimented five-man system basketball. But as they got a little bit tired and as the quarter progressed, it would kind of get devolved into some more one-on-one and the game would get kind of messy and the coach would call timeout and say, okay, guys, remember, we run, you know, let's run our, get our two-guard front, whatever. And then they would do it again and they get a little tired. So it's interesting. We, we kind of started to see the this, this slow dissolution of that and then into the 80s. But what's interesting to me is that what you notice is in the 70s, you see a lot of two-guard front offenses, like almost exclusively. And then it's something happens, and I'm wondering what your take on it is, uh, that all of a sudden around, you know, 79, and I think that I'm, I'm leading you on this question, but certainly something happens where all of a sudden it goes to a one-guard front, and most teams want that one lead guard uh, out there. And I'm wondering if you've noticed that or, or have any sense of an evolution of how that, that, that transformed. No, you're right, and I, I think you're you're right in tracing it to the late set or to, to 78, 79. Um, I think it, in in part it's because the league's getting bigger, and so you have you're bringing in wing players now that are six five, six six, six seven in some cases. George Gervin's playing small or playing shooting guard, and he's six eight. Well, I mean, he's a good ball handler, but he's a scorer, he's a slasher, he's not a um, the the prototypical point guard. Uh, if you look at like the seventy two Lakers, for example, that have Gail Goodrich and um, and West. Jerry West, they have. Two guys that can handle the ball really well, um, and that that and their teams. The the seventy five Warriors are a great example. A really super deep team that has a number of guys that can handle the ball, uh, but are, are six six foot six two six four. I think there was that that um, fascination that that love of the big guard that I think is part of it at least. So you're you're getting away from the two playmakers and you're going to one playmaker with two slashers. Uh, or shooters on the wings, and I think that that's part of it. I, you know, I didn't, I didn't find anything definitive that a reason for that transition, but it just feels like Billy Knight of the Pacers, another example, the six-five-six-six guy that could get buckets, but he's not a great ball handler. You don't want him to to come and initiate the offense. So I think that could be part of it. Sure, sure. I mean, I, that that all makes perfect sense, too. I, I kind of feel like part of it was Magic and Isaiah. Oh, sure, yeah. You know, yeah. and all of a sudden, and that trickled down very quickly to, uh, you know, even the high school level. I remember, you know, if I would have had a two-guard front, I had to play point guard, but I wasn't a great ball handler. I was much more of a shooting guard. I, I would have been a lot easier for me because when there's a guard next to me, I could relieve the pressure. But instead, they were like, here's the ball, here's the 50 feet, good luck, you know, and, and go up. And I, I a lot of it, I think, has to do with magic and, and those guys who came in all of a sudden. They wanted that dynamic one guard leading the break and then initiating the offense. The funny thing is, is when I had talked to Pete Newell about this, and uh, you know, when you have a two guard front and two forwards and one center, you kind of have a more open floor. Whereas when you have one guard on top and two forwards, you got to have two guys like down by the baseline or in the corner or something. Their men can get in the way down by the basket a little bit easier. So I always found an interesting argument that a two guard front actually spaces the floor better. Well, and it's, I, we mentioned that Bulls team earlier. That always sticks with me that Dick Mata had his, – his alignment was he wanted two guards to be able to guard the basket if the other team came on a fast oh, yeah. break. 
Yeah. His forwards were going forward to try to score the basketball, and the center is in the middle as a pivot. And I'm like, wow, it's as if the you know the, the names of the positions kind of fit there. And but but you don't see that later. And you're right. By the late '70s, it's the point guards getting back, and and the point guards initiating the offense, and everybody else is kind of in in scoring position. You know, you just blew my mind because you're right. In theory, if you want to think about getting back on defense, that's why you call those guys guards and why you call the other guys forwards. I, you know what? I'm not even really sure I appreciated that uh, until just now. Right, and I didn't until I read Mata. It was one of Mata's books or he had a quote in an article or something. I, uh, but, yeah, and that, and that I had the same kind of moment of like, oh, wow, guards and forwards. That makes great sense. Did you talk to that Mata? Or to, to, uh, not that Mata, excuse me, guy. Did you talk to Dick Mata at all <laughs> for this, for this uh, book? I'm an Ohio State fan, so Thad Mott is still kind of hurt. All right, fair um, enough. So, I don't think there's a relation, uh, by the way, know. is there? No, he spells it differently, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I actually, I, I intentionally didn't talk to any players or coaches for this book because um, some of my other work is done with things like historical memory and how people remember the past. And I didn't, I really didn't want the book to be colored with those rose-colored glasses of, hey, 40 years ago, this is what I remember, and... Um, in working on a, a project since then, I've talked to players and had great conversations, but it's still, there's always that element of they remember things maybe differently than, than actually happened. And um, fun story about that. So I, I wanted to, to get blurbs for the back of the book. And so I managed to get a hold of Dave Cowens, had a great conversation with Dave Cowens. And he said, yeah, send me a copy of the book. And uh, again, had a, a fantastic conversation, great guy to talk to on the phone. Um, but he looked at the book and said, you know, I, I don't think I want to write a blurb because I see some inaccuracies. You know, I never said this. And so I went back to my sources and, you know, the New York Times said he said that. But you know, 40 years in, in later and maybe he remembered it a little differently or maybe he didn't say that and it was misreported. But I decided that I didn't I, I was glad I didn't have a book full of those sorts of um, contradictions I had to iron out. So sure. I, I did talk to Dick Mata, but I, I, I read a lot of his stuff and super smart guy. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because you, you know what he does now? Who's that, Mata? Yeah. No, I don't. He, he runs a bed and be- breakfast uh, with his wife, uh, <laughs> and, you know, in a way that I, I kind of, it's, well, I got to figure out, it's the Bluebird Inn. I'm just looking it up right now because I got to remember it's in Utah. Where is it? It's, um, I forgot what what state it's in, but it's a beautiful little bed and breakfast. And it's like, can you imagine like you show up to stay at this place, and all of a sudden it's a legendary Chicago Bulls coach who uh, you know won a, a title with. Uh, wait, uh, let's see, Dick Mata won with Ebola. Washington. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, and later on, and so um, anyway, I think that's hilarious. And so I, I'm, I'm going to have to try and you've inspired me to get him on the show and see if I can't get him to call in. Uh, I've had Frank Layden on once, and that which is an amazing sure. uh, pod. And so <laughs> at any rate, yep. um, but yeah, it's uh, it is really fascinating because you're talking a lot about um, you know sort of the the influence we're talking about of coaches. You know, probably was never at its at its greatest than like at the '70s, or maybe that was when it peaked, and then it's you know the influence has slowly gone down. I think you can argue maybe back. It's kind of back now um, to where it used to be. I, I was thinking, though, um, can we let, let's let's spotlight a few of the inch more interesting, quirky characters that you encountered uh, while writing this book that maybe like caught your eye that that you hadn't really heard about before. Well, I think one from a from an on court standpoint, like I mentioned earlier, was Tom Bullerwinkle, this kind of uh, big pass, you know, passing big man. Uh, you mentioned earlier as well, Tiny Archibald. Mm-hmm. I knew the points and assists that he was the only person to have led the league in those and all that sort of thing. But just the way that he played was always amazing. That he was, uh, and and I like that you your comparisons with with Iverson and such that he could get into the lane and score. 
Um, as far as quirky off-court personalities, honestly, one of my favorite that I came across is uh, um, Neil Walk. And so Neil Walk was drafted second behind Luau Cinder, who'd become Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And the Suns basically lost a coin flip, and so they're stuck with Walk. And uh, Jabbar, Al Cinder, goes to, to Milwaukee. Walk was hilarious, and he was such a character. Like, um, he, he ends up going to the Knicks later in his career. He bounced around a little bit. Had a couple really good seasons where he's averaging – I don't have the numbers up, 18 and 8 or something like that, where he's putting up good numbers. And um, he became a vegetarian, lost 25 pounds, didn't have the, didn't have the strength to push around inside. But some of the things, he was, he was a fantastic uh, um, source for reporters who wanted to quote. If they wanted something unfiltered, players to drop the F-bomb, like they would go to Neil Walk, and he was going to supply that every time. Uh, so, so he was one of the fun personalities that I just – I knew him as the guy who got drafted after Kareem, but the more you dig into it, like, wow, there's really some interesting characters that kind of emerge out of that, that 70s, uh, out of that era. Absolutely. You know, one guy that kind of, um, you know, and by the way, that guy was as hairy as anybody could be. Like, I remember when you <laughs> oh, see yeah. those, that footage, it's like, it's his back and his chest is crazy. I don't know, maybe players are waxing these days, but, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, and, and it was, it's always fun to watch those early 70s Suns teams because they ran the triangle offense with, you know, Cotton Fitzsimmons sure. was the coach who had been Tex Winter's assistant at K-State. And, uh, and they ran it probably as, as well as any other team, probably maybe even better than the Bulls ever did uh, even then. You know, one guy that caught my mind, uh, my eye, as I'm reading your book, was this guy Wendell Ladner, um, who, to me, played in the ABA. And you know, obviously, there is no, no book would be complete about the NBA in the 70s without having to talk about the ABA a little bit. But um, this guy sounded kind of like Jackie Moon. <laughs> he was. He was a playboy. I mean, he, he looked like Burt Reynolds. And so he would... You know, he had this—he had this great 1970s mustache, and uh, he was a teammate of Dr. J's in um, in, in New York with the Nets, and uh, unfortunately died in a plane crash uh, shortly after they won the title in 74, 75, right in there somewhere. But he—he he was a good player. He was—he was very Jackie Moon. He was uh, not as skilled in basketball as he was um, a with the ladies, and b with—he was an enforcer. He'd come off the bench and. And, and beat some people up a little bit. And then after the game, he, you know, he'd go to the nightclub and be out till two, three, four in the morning. He kind of had, he had girlfriends in every, every city and just a fantastic character, total playboy. And, uh, um, but also really an on-court enforcer. So it was just a really interesting mix. For sure, yeah, it just kind of struck me like there's something there about that, which I'm sure there was probably more more of those kind of characters too. Um, now, the other, let me ask you this: like as you sprinkle in sort of cultural touchstones uh, that were going on outside of basketball in the book, uh, in you know concurrently with what's going on on the court, um, were there any kind of you know things that struck you as like really sort of interesting parallels as well that you didn't sort of think about beforehand or had any kind of influence on what was going on you know in, in the NBA? Sure. Um, the best example of that to me is I went to Kent State University in Ohio for my master's degree. So I knew all about the Kent State shootings in, in May of 1970. Well, I didn't put that into basketball context until I was pretty deep in my research and found that that was during the NBA Finals in 1970. The, the very famous Nick Lakers, Willis Reed comes out and limps onto the court. Um, that's Game sevens maybe played a week later, but they actually played the day after Kent State. And so... Um, that Knicks team's interesting in that two of the players, I believe it was Mike Riordan and Cassie Russell, had um, they were members of the National Guards. So they missed some time because they were serving in the National Guard during the season. 
Well, it, at, at Madison Square Garden before, I think it's game five maybe, where Willis Reed actually hurts his, him, himself, uh, they play the national anthem, and there are people in the upper decks that aren't sitting for the national anthem. They're smoking pot in the third deck at, at Madison Square Garden. Wow. Um, just this very kind of politically and emotionally charged time in history. And, uh, uh, you know, the fact that the NBA is not immune to this is and, – and that that Knicks team's been, you know, fantastically interesting because not only do they have guys like Riordan and Russell playing for the national – or participating in the National Guard, they've got Phil Jackson who's very outspoken about his – um, uh, opposition to the war. They've got Bill Bradley, who ends up becoming Senator Bill Bradley, uh, very outspoken in his opposition to the war. And so it's this really kind of unique mix. But I never put two and two together that May of 1970, they're playing the this iconic finals at the same time at Vietnam and May 4th in, uh, in Kent State. Yeah, absolutely. And that, I was definitely struck by that when I started to read it. I'm like, oh, you know, you, you don't often think about the context of like what's going on, uh, especially then. I feel like that we've heard about certain times in the 60s where we saw Lou Alcindor and like and, um, you know, Cassius Clay or Muhammad Ali dealing with a lot of things that are going on politically, but not necessarily as much in the 70s. And so uh, that was really interesting. One big thing for me that made me perk up is you know, nobody knew this until I started. I mean, I, no one ever mentioned this before. So I had, and I'm a big JFK uh, conspiracy freak, um, and that uh, that that kind of naturally gets to Watergate. I'm sure, as a historian, you you probably understand there's a lot of connections, uh, either fringe or not, uh, that connect JFK and Watergate. But when I was looking at some stuff, like you realize that the Watergate offices uh, that they broke into in 1972 were uh, that of um, Larry O'Brien. And I, I almost fell off my chair because I'm like, wait, that can't be the same Larry O'Brien as the Larry O'Brien Trophy. And sure enough, it is. Um, did you did anything else come across when you were doing research about that that like struck your uh, that, that caught your eye? Well, no, but that his uh, his experience with the Democratic National uh, National Party was a big reason why he got the post in seventy seventy. When did he come in? Seventy four, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it, it's a big reason why he got that gig was that experience, and in fact he was he was seen as kind of the um, uh, the dark horse candidate when he came in. There was a the deputy commissioner was a man named Simon Gordine, who was an African American, highly qualified, had basically served as the, uh, you know, the he was the deputy um, uh, prior, so he was kind of seen as the heir apparent. Well, they went outside the organization because they wanted somebody because of all the political things going on with the merger and the lawsuits going on. They wanted someone that had uh, a stronger political background. So, no, the fact, the fact that his, uh, his offices were broken, broken into and that he played a, a leading role in that was a big reason why O'Brien ends up getting the gig. Okay. Well, and that, well, that, well, that, what that leads me to believe is that we need to talk to David Stern because I think he would end up knowing <laughs> w- what really happened with Watergate because <laughs> there's sure. too many questions yeah. unanswered. Uh, and we know that Larry O'Brien's not around anymore, but, but uh, certainly David Stern was his right-hand man uh, for quite a long time before he took over in 85, I think. So uh, right. fascinating stuff when that pops up in my mind. Uh, one thing I didn't know uh, reading the book was that Dr. J was actually drafted by the Bucks. Uh, we all had heard about the Hawks trying to sign him outright and play with Pistol Pete, which would have been amazing. Did you, by the way, did you come across any video footage of those um, of those games, uh, the the uh, preseason games that they played together? No, and uh, I, I've seen some some pictures. One of the amazing things to me was that one of the best the best um, firsthand account that we have of those games, other than some newspaper stuff, is actually David Thompson. So David Thompson ends up becoming a superstar for the Nuggets. 
went to those pre or at least to one of the preseason games and later writes all about how it was this amazing connection and uh so it's interesting kind of the the le the level there but no to the best of my knowledge there's no video that exists of that um just some pictures that we have that uh and, and a lot of first-hand accounts that say it was just magic to watch those two play on the same team yeah that it's tantalizing however what would have been even more tantalizing would have been if they if the bucks had gotten their way uh i can't imagine what that would have been like with oscar dr j and a, a young kareem Abdul jabbar uh that would have been a dynasty i can't imagine them losing uh you know very many games no and with their skill sets the way they complemented each other they you're not there's not a lot of redundancy there and so um, you know, point guard, a small forward, and a center. All three. Oscar was was clearly past his peak at that point, but he could still he could still go. And some of those Bucks players are underrated too. They had a guy named John McLaughlin that could stretch the floor, if you want to use a modern term, at shooting guard. They had some athletic power forwards that could kind of do some garbage work. So, no, that would have been I, that would have been the the dynasty of the '70s. And I argue in my book that I don't think there really was a dynasty of the '70s. And I think that that's that certainly would have been if they could have kept it together for a couple of years. Yeah, for sure. And then, and then, you know, obviously the, the dynasty that was would, should have been was the Knicks, and and they, sure. you know, like I guess they got two in the early '70s, but then uh, you know got derailed by injuries and whatnot. So that was tough. Uh, and you're right, there the, the really wasn't one. I think you know the the most interesting thing about the merger, as we wrap this up, is is that you know they the Philly ended up getting Dr. J, and they had a pretty much you know like a Miami Heat. Wouldn't you say they were like the Heat of uh, 2010? Sure, yeah, they had a couple star players, and we focus on Dr. J, but they were a team of superstars. They had uh, George McGinnis, um, they had Doug Collins. Both Doug Collins had been a number one overall pick. McGinnis was probably the best player in the ABA. Well, he was a top four or five player in the ABA um, other than Dr. J. And, I mean, having those three on the same team, just they were a mega team, let alone the cast of characters that they had uh, you know, on the bench and everything. But, oh, they were... They they had a big three for sure in uh, in you know seventy six seventy seven yeah and I, and I, what I loved about the fact is that they ended up getting beaten by the the Blazers uh, led by you know Bill Walton and then sort of a bunch of uh, role players in in a way um, and and the style of play was really striking we've done a, a video on that uh, on one of those games where you can just see how. Uh, the, the Blazers kind of ran what you described like in, in, in um, Chicago with a lot of cutting, a lot of movement. And the Sixers in their all-star mode sort of kind of isolated a lot and didn't have as much movement. And they lost. And I thought that was a really fascinating you know, moment of time where we got one of our last, you know, for a while, uh, sort of these like, you know, team of not huge stars, not big names overcoming a, a star, a star laden team. That was exciting. It was, and at the time, it was definitely seen as a as an upset. The Sixers were were clearly favored because they had that big three. It's kind of akin to the uh, 2011 when when Dallas uh, beat Miami, and it's that Dirk surrounded by a bunch of quality role players in very similar way uh, of with Walton in '77. For sure. Well, uh, awesome stuff. I can't recommend enough for people to go out and buy the book. It's called Tall Tales and Short Shorts. Dr. J, Pistol Pete, and the birth of the modern NBA. And there's no question, it's certainly, that is the time. That is ground zero, 1970, pretty much, is when, uh, as we talked about, dribbling kind of exploded, uh, pace was at its highest uh, of all time, and just a really exciting game. And then the ABA merger. So um, really great stuff, Adam. I, I can't thank you enough for coming on and discussing this. And, uh, you know, we could, we could do this again sometime. Sounds great. Thanks for having me, Coach. You got it. And don't forget, sports fans, at B-Ball Breakdown, we're not a channel, we're a conversation. You win. Are you an Adam? Absolutely. <laughs>